Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So we're just in the second week of a kind of new worship series. It's about cancel culture and King David, and slowly over several weeks we'll be building an argument. Tonight is one installment in that longer argument. Last week the question was, what if David, king of Israel, was bisexual? This week, what if David was malformed by violence? A little bit of political history so that this reading from 2 Samuel chapter 5 will make sense. Maybe you heard last week that Saul, the first king of the Israelite monarchy, died in warfare and several of his sons died alongside him, leaving the throne of the new nation of Israel open. Now what we think of as Israel in the Hebrew Bible is really a loose confederation of family groupings or tribes, and early on in their existence together, they have a north-south split, sort of an ancient Mason-Dixon line dividing them, if you will. The southern tribes are together in a coalition called Judah, which will later be called Judea in the time of Jesus. The northern tribes are in a confederation together known as Israel. Upon Saul's death, the northern tribes of Israel have installed a new king, Ishbosheth, one of Saul's not dead sons, which makes sense in the line of succession, but it has not gone well for reasons we're not going to go into tonight. The southern tribes of Judah have hailed David as their warrior king, and they have established him in Hebron, a city in the deep south of that territory. So the story in 2 Samuel 5 that we're about to read is the story of the northern tribes of Israel coming to David in the south to say that they need a do-over, that David can be their king too. And so David decides that his capital city should be moved from Hebron in the deep south further north on that Mason-Dixon line. He looks at the map and chooses Jerusalem, a city with a high elevation and strong fortification. The only problem is there are already people there, and they're not Israelites, and they're not Judahites. They are Jebusites. Boom, boom, boom. A content consideration for our text from 2 Samuel 5, there are ableist insults flung in the middle of the story. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time while Saul was king over us, it was you who led Israel out and brought it in. The Lord said to you, it is you who shall be shepherd of my people Israel, you who shall rule over Israel. 
So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king, David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking David cannot come in here. Can he? Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David, David had said on that day, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. Surprise, surprise. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. King Hiram of Tyre sent messengers to David, along with cedar trees and carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David then perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of God's people, Israel. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Tonight we acknowledge that the big red barn on the southeast edge of Fort Worth, Texas, stands on land that was home, hunting ground, and route of safe passage for several tribes of indigenous peoples known as Comanche, Wichita, Tawakoni, Juminos, and Kikapoi. These peoples were stewards of the land for generations before this territory was claimed and occupied by European settlers. Fort Worth was actually a fort, one of eight U.S. Army outposts established to maintain white people's dominance over the peoples of the First Nations. So we acknowledge, so we remember. A word about those ableist insults. The lectionary, which is a schedule of Bible readings that many churches around the world follow together, would rather we did not read that part. It's ugly and hurtful, and I can see why we might rather skip it. But everything about this text is begging us to confront what's painful and problematic in our past. The Jebusites, whose city Jerusalem was, hear that David wants it and send out a taunt. You can't come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, they say. Essentially, come and take it, and we will trounce you with one hand tied behind our backs. But the Jebusites underestimate the strategy and strength of David's militia, the mercenaries who fight with him for love and money. 
David sends back an insult RSVP to the Jebusites, something like, when we get there, you'll see, it'll be as if all of you, all of my enemies, those whom I hate, are blind and lame. That's how bad we're going to clobber you. The part in verse 8 about how, therefore, this is why the blind and the lame can't come into the house, which we presume to reference the temple in Jerusalem, which did not yet exist, of course, at the time of all this taunting. Honestly, we don't know what that means. There was never any such religious regulation that kept disabled folks from coming into the temple, so it is unclear what that's about, except for this. Taken all together, the ableist insult slinging is a window into how, to this very day, we are likely to judge people by their contributory value to the systems that give us what we want. The language we use to describe other people says a lot about what we value most. For example, I learned recently that when we say a person with developmental or intellectual disability is high-functioning, many such high-functioning individuals hear that as code for what we really value in people, that they can hold a job, contribute to the economy, occupy a cog in the capitalist machine. In the case of David and the Jebusites, at a time of constant warfare and ruthless land grabs, a person's fitness to fight would be the measure of their humanity. Those who can't see, those with mobility impairments, probably not your frontline fighting force. So we could have skipped that painful paragraph about the blind and the lame, but if we did, we might have skipped right over the even more painful reality that it sort of cracks open for us, which is that Jerusalem, that shining city on a hill, the eventual home of the temple of the one true God, the religious capital to which Jesus himself traveled reverentially to practice the religion of his heart, belonged first to someone else and was taken from them by force and at great cost. Sometimes the Bible shows us the carnage of warfare by numbering the dead among God's chosen people, Israel, but more often we're allowed to glide right past the pain to celebrate or mourn the outcome, enter a tally mark in the wins or losses column without thinking at all about the military families who were notified that day of their greatest fear come true. And we're almost always left to guess about the number of enemy casualties inflicted by Israel's armies. In this case, how many Jebusites' bodies litter the streets of Jerusalem? And what are the chances they're all combatants? Unless Families had time during their leader's insult flinging to hide the most vulnerable souls behind barricades. One commentator points out with some relief that this account does not report the genocidal slaughter of the residents of Jerusalem, so it's likely that many Jebusites were left alive to coexist alongside their Israelite occupiers. Whew! 
I do not share his solace. As the Jebusites were among the tribes slated for eradication when the Israelites first set foot on the land they'd been promised, Jebusites, along with the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, Deuteronomy 7.1, and many other places in Scripture, in case you'd like to look that up. Which asks us to consider whether and in what sense the Jebusites of Jerusalem were really David's enemies, or Israel's enemies at all. If all they were doing was living where they lived raising their families, going to work, worshiping their understanding of divinity in the world. Unless we stretch the definition of enemy to mean whoever and whatever stands between David and what he wants, which I think David would be fine with. This would be so easy if David were the one with whom we have to do. I mean, if this story were about David, if 2 Samuel was about David, if the Bible was a collection of stories about people that were meant to revere or reject, then we could say, well, David was a complicated dude, like all of our ancestors. Sometimes he was so good, so very good, even great. And sometimes he was so bad, so very bad, even awful, and that's just how people are. And God loves us anyway, right? What makes it much, much harder than that, and frankly so much more important than figuring out how to deal with the legacy of David, is that God is in this story, in this history because the Bible is a story about God, told chapter by chapter, book by book, era by era, as a series of humanity's dealings with God so that subsequent generations can continue in relationship with God. So here's how God shows up in 2 Samuel 5. Are you ready? When the northern tribes come to David to say that he can be their king too, and David decides to move his capital northward to Jerusalem, and David's mercenaries rout the Jebusites from their stronghold, the narrator says, verse 10, and David become greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And when the neighboring kings figure out that it's really better to make nice with David than to get on his enemy's list, and King Hiram of Tyre, a region far to the north on the Mediterranean coast, a city where Jesus will someday take a sunny seaside vacation. I'm not kidding, it's in Mark 7 if you want to look that up. When King Hiram sends David a king-to-king -king welcome gift, a new house, all the lumber and all the laborers it will take to assemble it, well, that's when David knows for sure, verse 12, that God is on his side. David then perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of God's people, Israel. <laughs> Just in case you are not catching it, which I'm sure you are, the text is asserting through both David's and the narrator's assessments, that when David gets what David wants, that is a sign of God's favor. It's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. 
that God is tuned in to our desires, our comforts, our ambitions, and that God grants those material blessings to God's beloveds. And with the prosperity gospel, you got to do the flip side. When life sucks, when nothing is working, when your city is conquered by an upstart king trying to make a name and a nation for himself, that's God's communique that you are not God's chosen ones. That's the threat of the prosperity gospel, see? To make that work in your mind, to make it okay, just please don't think too much about the Jerusalem Jebusites just living their lives or the Texas Comanche or Kickapoy, or the disability community still arguing for their own inherent dignity, or anyone you love who is suffering has suffered the lack or loss of material comfort or physical health or emotional equilibrium. In fact, don't think too much about yourself, past, present, or future suffering the inevitable hardship that is human experience. In the immortal words of Michael Stipe, everybody hurts sometimes. Okay, so now I have tied a knot that I'm pretty sure I cannot untie in the time allotted tonight or in my lifetime. It's a biggie, this problem of divinely sanctioned violence and victory as a sign of God's approval. Let me just tell you some of the strategies that I have tried for solving it, yeah? First, I have tried the one where we say, but that's the Old Testament God. The New Testament God isn't like that. Okay, that one doesn't work, mostly because the Testaments themselves do not acknowledge that kind of shift in God's person or personality. The Gospels themselves are committed to demonstrating continuity in the story, insisting that Jesus fulfills rather than contradicts what his ancestors knew to be true about God. Same God. It also doesn't work because even Christians who say that, that was the Old Testament God, can still be very committed to the idea of a God who blesses us when we're good and disciplines us when we're bad, both in this life and in the life to come. That God is a scorekeeping, vengeful God whose rewards we earn and whose punishment we avoid. And it still prevails in the hearts of many New Testament Christians. We might imagine that it's better now because we do it without killing any Jebusites, right? That is, without getting our own hands bloody with violence. But the truth is, we're mostly happy to let others get their hands bloody for us. For those of us who are white, our recent ancestors occupied this land violently and then passed it on to us. Are our hands clean? For those of us who are US Americans, we've all enjoyed the privilege of global empire that our military industrial complex affords us. Are our hands clean? 
For those of us who are Christian, we have been taught to imagine that Jesus' crucifixion was God's idea, a just recompense demanded by a violent God who will have blood as payment for our dumb fuckery. Are our hands clean in that theory of substitutionary atonement? If God slaughters an innocent lamb for our sake, are we innocent of that violence? I don't think we can escape the problem of the Jerusalem Jebusites by saying, well, that was then, but this is now concerning God's own involvement and our perceived exemption from it. Number two, I have tried that one where we say, well, you know, God is God. And if God wants us to cheer for the Israelites over the Jebusites, we better just shut up and do it. Hmm. This is the same logic that we would use to say, well, if the Bible sanctions slavery, <laughs> the literal buying and selling of human bodies on a market, like a commodity, well, then slavery is obviously okay. It's the same logic we would use to keep the patriarchy firmly in place, not because experience dictates that women are less capable humans than men, but because the Bible says so lots of times. So we just got to go with it. Same logic for homophobia, transphobia, and based on tonight's reading for anapirophobia, fear of disabled people. It's the same logic by which the earliest Christians who were all Jewish would have kept the Gentiles out of Christianity, Gentiles who were our ethnic ancestors, some of whom might have been Jebusites if there were any of them left by then. Their Bible told them that God didn't love Gentiles. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Oh, we know very well that this one doesn't work. It can't work mainly because the Holy Spirit within us and the Holy Spirit within Gentiles and women and LGBTQ plus folks and every gorgeous configuration of human body and being screams something different every time we read the parts of the Bible that discount the full humanity of any other. Yeah, the Bible speaks with a loud voice, the collective voice of our ancestors in faith, but it does not get the only voice as the spirit of the living Christ is still speaking, opening our eyes to see the new things God is doing in this world, things our ancestors just could not yet see. Third one, I have tried always briefly, but more often than you'd think. The one where you say, if God is like that, then why would I want anything to do with God? It's a variation on atheism, where belief in divinely sanctioned bigotry and violence and all the bigotry and violence that has been perpetrated in God's name over all these centuries runs so counter to my own deeply human nature that I just give up on faith completely for a minute. Okay, for a day. Okay, for a night. It's usually at night. Honestly, I'm hoping that this happens to you too once in a while. That you wrestle 
so intensively with your Christian faith that every so often you pin faith flat to the mat while the whole suffering world counts to three. As in wrestling, faith will get up to fight another day, and if you stay on the mat, I'm betting that some days you find yourself pinned, gasping, staring faith full in the face, knowing that it has won you again. For me, the deciding factor is always Jesus. The workaday carpenter schlepping out of Nazareth and the risen Christ shocking his friends. He's always telling me, after all I've been through, I still believe in God. What's your problem? It's the faith of Jesus, not my faith in Jesus, but Jesus' own faith that God's love is real. And God's love is for him. And God's love is worth it. That's what does it for me. It's, it's yours if you want it. Which leads me finally to the thing I have tried that comes closest to loosening that stubborn knot. It has to do with David and our biblical narrator in 2 Samuel and how hard they're both trying to narrate David's life and the life of all Israel as lives lived according to the will and purpose of God's own self. And it has to do with me and the church through the ages and how hard we've been trying to discover the nature and character of God as narrated by our ancestors in faith. But most of all, it has to do with God and how hard it is to keep up with God. How God is always just a little further down the road, beckoning to us to move a little bit, to take just a step, just a step closer to God's ideas about the world and everything in it. It's about how God keeps insisting on not just zapping the world into perfection, but rather works, wrestles in relationship with deeply flawed, sometimes wholly despicable people to get a little more and a little more and a little more of what God wants, scooch by scooch, bit by bit. It's about how God risks our wrong interpretation of God sometimes. Letting David and his narrator imagine that somehow it's military victory and material wealth that are signs of God's favor. When really, really we know that David was secretly anointed by God's prophet to be king when he was a little bitty boy, the eighth son of a poor family, the smallest among his brothers, David the bullied, David the laughed at. Read all about it in 1 Samuel 16 if you want. Because untying that knot that we found in 2 Samuel 5 has to do with also reading 1 Samuel 16 about little boy David, chosen, favored by God, and letting those two chapters, those two stories wrestle each other while we referee. We who are imbued with the spirit of the living Christ, 
We who recognize that the Bible says more than one thing about a thing sometimes. We who have learned that the Bible is best read critically in long arcs rather than verses or episodes stripped of context and in community with other wrestlers who are not afraid of contradiction and paradox. We who have found that God is sometimes poorly represented by our best guesses of how God feels about our getting more of what we want. We who have learned to be circumspect, very, very careful about things that have God's name stamped on them. Just because somebody stamped it on there, don't make it so. And I would add, we whose memory works forward as well as backward from the Jebusite casualties on Jerusalem's bloody streets to the bloody body of Jesus hung outside Jerusalem's walls and from there to the new and glorious Jerusalem for which we wait, the holy habitation of our God come down to earth, scripture says, the home where God will once again dwell with mortals and the blind and the lame and all the rest of us broken, burdened, beautiful people will stream to Mount Zion in the city, not of David, but of God. And on our way there, we will melt our weapons into farm tools and we will study war no more David's warring way will pass away, and with it, our warring way will pass away, too. May it be so. May it be soon. Amen. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities— we do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.